Well, good morning and welcome to Sojourn. My name is Dylan. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to thank you guys for coming. We just started a series last week in the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, John started us off really well. It's kind of laying the groundwork for, for 1 Corinthians and kind of the context there. And, and why do we study 1 Corinthians? Uh, in, in some sense, we, we study every portion of the Bible. We don't want to skip around any of it because we see the Bible as, as all sufficient for us as believers. We see it as inspired and inerrant truth from God to us. And this is how we are to order our life under the word and according to it. And so in some sense, that's why we study 1 Corinthians. But when we look at 1 Corinthians, as John said last week, this is maybe one of the most practical books in the New Testament, especially that, that Paul has written. And we're getting ready to deal with it in Corinthians coming up, how they deal with the vision within the church. Is that something practical for us? Absolutely. They're going to have marriage issues with either people uh, running off into sexual immorality or there's divorce issues amongst them. Is that something we deal with? Like, yes, absolutely. They're going to deal with abuses of the, the gifts of the Spirit. Is that something we see in churches? Absolutely. They have disorderly worship. They're doubting the resurrection or saying that it's already come. Like, all these things are put before us in 1 Corinthians, and this is why we, we go here. And when we look at the, the, the people at Corinth, we see like they were kind of a mess. They, they had some issues. They, they were in sexual immorality and there's all sorts of other disorderly conduct and they were dividing amongst themselves. But there's a church in Corinth. And what that means is that God's grace had penetrated some rough lives. And so as we turn to 1 Corinthians, this is what we're going to see. Not the story of the Corinthians, but the story of God and how he wants to work in them. And there's this old saying that says, dance with the one that brought you. Now, my wife and I have dated for a long time. Now we're married, and uh, we dated in high school. So we, we had the chance to go to our high school prom together. I don't know if any of you have had that chance. I know, talk, I've talked to a few of you that have had that same chance. But what would you think if I asked my wife to go to prom with me, and then as soon as we got there and we get on the dance floor, because I can really dance, I mean, we're good. That's totally false. What would you think if she just completely left me and went over and started dancing with somebody else? Man, in high school, that's, that's a big scandal if someone's been dating and then like, man, in, in front of everybody, they just run off and start dancing with somebody else. Like, this is going to cause some problems, right? And this all of a sudden is going to bring up all this turmoil, all this drama. It's going to start and the problems come because... What I'm going to say is just she left me. She didn't dance with the one that brought her to the prom. Now, Paul, as he starts out this letter, is, is going to give the Corinthians a, a similar message. Dance with the one that brought you. See, he's getting ready to point out to them that they were saved by the grace of God. Grace was given them in Christ Jesus. And what he's saying before he even starts with all these issues and problems that he has is he starts to give thanks to God for the grace that he's been given to them. And so as he, as he begins, he, he's, he's reminding them to remember the one that started their whole spiritual journey. Remember the one who brought them to this show in the first place. They are to see Jesus as the center of their lives, as their all in all, as their past, present, and future salvation. And today, that's exactly what Paul would have us do as well. To see Jesus as our all in all. To see Jesus as the center of our life. To see Jesus as the one who saved us, the one who's going to save us, and the one who is currently saving us. And so this is how Paul begins his letter. He starts to give thanks. And if you turn to the book of Corinthians, we'll be in verses 4 through 9 this morning primarily. And so he gives this greeting as John went through last week, we won't spend much time there. But then he starts to, to give this thanksgiving to them. 
And, and all, the, all the way, in verses 4 through 9, what you're going to see is Paul giving thanks and pointing them, instead of to their problems and to their gifts, pointing them to Jesus Christ as their all in all. And so he starts in verse 4, and he says, I give thanks to my God always for you. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Now I think that the, kind of the main clause for these, this chunk of verses, 4 through 9, is that very phrase, I give thanks. And in fact, the, the first 4 through 8, verses 4 through 8, is all one sentence and finally breaks into a different sentence in verse 9. And so Paul is starting out with this, this giving thanks is, is one of his primary things that he's starting out with here. He, he's thankful for the Corinthians. And we have to stop and think about that because Paul is thankful for the Corinthians. You know who the Corinthians are? They're the, they're the people that caused Paul maybe the most grief out of any church that he planted. They're the ones who are going to cause him all sorts of issues as he has to confront them and exhort them with truth because they were unwilling to receive it from him at times. They're the ones who are going to accuse him of having a kind of subpar ministry. They're the ones that are going to divide. They're the ones that are going to have all this rampant sin amongst them. And yet Paul starts out not with, I can't believe you guys, but... I give thanks for you. I give thanks for you. Even though they're going to cause him so much grief, he's thankful for them. Yeah, Paul says in Ephesians 5.20, give thanks always and for everything. He, he says earlier in chapter 5 of Ephesians, he says, don't let filthy talk come out of your mouth, but be, be thankful the things you say. He says in Colossians 3.15, be thankful. He says in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances. He tells the Colossians to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, giving thanks. And Paul is a man who lives under the authority of the word of God. And he is a man who practiced what he preaches. And so when he says give thanks, even in all circumstances, even when there's a people that's causing you much grief, he gives thanks. He gives thanks for them. It just is a side note. Are we even thankful for the people in our lives that will cause us grief? Uh, Paul is here. He sees people. And he knows what kind of grief they've caused him. He knows what kind of people they are. And he gives thanks to God for them. Are we thankful for the people around us, even the difficult ones? Now, and why is Paul thankful? Why is he thankful? He says in verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. See, Paul saw all the mess that was the Corinthians, but he also saw grace in them. He saw the work of God in them. Even with all the other junk that was surrounding their lives, he saw grace in them. In every single believer, no, how, no matter how messed up we are, there's grace in us, and it's noticeable. No matter our struggles, no matter any believer's struggles, we should be able to see grace in one another. And Paul recognizes it, and he affirms it. He doesn't ignore it. He could have gone straight to the issues. He could have gone straight to their divisions. He could have gone straight to their sexual immorality. But he gives thanks for the grace that is in them. He doesn't ignore it, but he affirms it in them. And look at Paul. Thankful for them thankful for the grace of God in them, but look who he gives thanks to. Who does he give thanks to? He said, I give thanks to my God. He gives thanks to God. He's thankful for the Corinthians, but to God. God's grace is the ones that had penetrated their lives. They had penetrated the evil hearts and the evil that was so present at Corinth. And God is the one who he gives thanks to. Now, when we talk about 
God's grace, and we talk about how it's penetrated lives, what, what are we talking about? And God's grace, this grace, this term grace is a term that we can easily throw out there and even have some sort of concept of what it is, but so often we make it so boring. Like grace, oh, that's just, you know, amazing grace. And we sing it and we let it come off our lips and we just, we don't put much emphasis behind it. So what are we talking about when we're talking about God's grace? Well, many of you would probably think of right off that, we're talking about unmerited favor, right? That's kind of the classic definition. Unmerited favor. And that's right. This is what it is. It's a gift. It's something that no one has deserved or earned. But what it, what it is, kind of in a different way, is God's wonderful acceptance of sinful people. That's what God's grace is. His wonderful acceptance of us. It's his power at work in our powerless lives. And so when God's grace comes, it's nothing that anyone has deserved or earned or could ever deserve or earn, but it's his power at work in powerless lives. And he doesn't come and say, I want to thank these Corinthians for being ready to receive it. I want to come and I want to thank these Corinthians for having knowledge and insight and being just about there, and then I came and put them over the top. I don't want to come and thank the Corinthians for, for all the, the power that they have in and of themselves or that they were deserving. No, he comes and he gives thanks to God because grace is only one way. And that's another definition of it, this one-way love that God has for sinful people like the people at Corinth, like me and like us all here today. This is God's grace that had penetrated. And he thanks God for the inbreaking of his grace in the midst of this broken situation, in the midst of their broken lives. This grace is what had transformed them. This grace is why he can write to a church that is at Corinth. Because God's grace is at work. His life-altering, life-changing, in-breaking, amazing grace. And I love what one pastor and author has said about it. He says, grace means God's, God's love in action toward people who merited the opposite of love. Grace means God moving heaven and earth to save sinners who could not lift a finger to save themselves. Here we have the Corinthians entrenched in their sin and their lifestyle and their way of life and God brings his grace to them in Christ Jesus. He's moving heaven and earth so that he could save them. How is this grace given to them according to Paul? It was given in Christ Jesus, the one who is the God-man, the mediator between God and man, the one who stood in the gap where we could never do. He is the one who, who God says he, he so loved the world that he sent this son. And this is through whom grace has given, been given to the Corinthians. Believer, this is your story. You are broken, sinful, ruined in a broken world, deserving not of grace, deserving of hell forever, deserving of judgment, deserving of wrath. And yet if you're a believer, then you can say that your story is about this amazing grace of God, that when you were a wretch, it saved you. When you were blind, it opened your eyes. Thanks be to God. This has been given to us in Christ Jesus. Not when we were deserving, not when we were worthy, not when we got all cleaned up, not when we were, had everything together, but when we were in the pit, when we were in our sinfulness, when we were a mess, this is how it came, and it's always how it comes. And so what we're left with, as the Corinthians should be left with, is no reason to boast in and of ourselves, but only the reason to say, I give thanks to God because grace was given to me through Jesus Christ, as Paul does here for these Corinthians. If you're not a believer, what you don't need is to be powerful 
and figure out some way to be deserving before God or figure out some way to kind of get it all figured out and then come to God. What you need to do is see Jesus Christ, the one through whom grace has been given. And clearly through Jesus, grace is being offered to us. We are the ones who are just to take hold of it, to repent and believe that Jesus is enough. Believe that message. That's good news, that you deserved wrath, but grace has been offered to you in Christ Jesus. No matter how messed up you are, no matter how broken you are in your whole situation. And this is Corinth's story. Broken, messed up situation. Grace penetrates. No one and no city such as Corinth is beyond the reach of God's grace. And so as believers, we need to stop and do what Paul does here and remember the grace that was given us in Christ Jesus. Now I'll give you two days in the life of, of, of me, all right? Day one, I wake up. I just have this pounding headache. My throat is sore. Like Things are not feeling good. But I want to be a godly man. So I get up. I'm going to go get the, get the Bible. I'm going to start reading and praying. As soon as I sit down with my head aching, I'm like, God, I'm going to do this because I love you. Sit down. As soon as I sit down and open the Bible, Reed starts crying. Reed is our five-month-old. I'm like, okay, great. We can deal with this. I go to pick him up from his crib. I pick him up like, yay, happy boy today. We're going to have some fun. Throws up on me immediately. Vomit all over my clothes. I'm thinking, golly, this day can't get worse. It's not off to a good start. I'm trying to wake up Catherine. Somehow she's like in a sleep coma. She's not waking up. So I'm trying to deal with this kid and vomit on me all at the same time when my head is pounding. All right? Finally, finally, Catherine wakes up. She comes to help me. I'm running late because I had to clean up all this mess on the floor and on my clothes and change everything. I'm trying to get to work. I run in and try to get some, some breakfast. I'm thinking, maybe Catherine made me some breakfast. There's no breakfast there, nothing at all. I got my, a few little niblets of nuts if I want to eat those, but I don't. So I'm like out the door trying to get there. Start my car. Battery doesn't work. It's broken. It's cold outside. Things are, things are going awful. Finally get somebody to pick me up, give me a ride. I come here. And immediately, I just get hammered with emails. You're horrible. You're bad at what you do. You shouldn't preach anymore. And I'm just, oh man, golly, what did I do? You know, like, man, and, then, and this is not just one. I just get, they just keep firing at me like, oh gosh, I really must be horrible. Like, must be a consensus basis here that I'm, I'm horrible at what I do. Then I start getting phone calls. People have problems left and right. And I just, I don't even know what to do with this. I didn't even get to read my Bible this morning. I didn't get to pray. I don't have time to deal with this. I can't, I can't do it. Work all the way through lunch. I don't even get to eat. I'm starving at this point. I'm, I'm running home. I'm like, oh, golly. At least my wife would make this place a solace, a place of, of respite for me after a hard day's work of just getting criticized and hammered with thing after thing. I go home thinking, man, there's probably a delicious, hot, warm meal on the table for me. I go home, and it's my least favorite meal ever. Oh, goodness. Like, could we have come up with something better than this? Start to eat, and I just start keep grumbling and complaining. The kids are acting like little demons. They're throwing food against the wall. Anna's jumping out of her chair and rolling around on the ground and screaming, acting like she's having a great time, but all the while I'm just losing my mind. I don't even want to eat any of the food because I, I don't even like it anyway. I start picking a fight with my wife because this whole day is just caving in. The kids, after, after supper, you think, oh, this is a nice quiet time. They'll get ready for bed. They don't. They're screaming the whole time. They're screaming their heads off going to bed. They don't go to sleep for hours. I go to bed, and I finally get there, and I just lay down. God, this has been a bad day. Please let tomorrow be better. That's day one. Day two. Day two, I wake up. I can hear birds chirping. Sun shining through the window. 
I sit down to read my Bible. Everybody is peaceful in the house. I can hear harps playing in the background. <laughs> this is going to be a good day. Like, I'm going to connect with God this morning. Things go great. I feel my heart just warm toward God. The word is just jumping out at me. It's live. Like, I'm loving it. I'm just singing, hallelujah, God. Praise you. This is awesome. This is exactly how it should be, right, every day. I go into the, the kitchen. There's sizzling bacon on the griddle there. It's, it's ready for me along with some waffles and eggs. I'm like, oh my gosh. And my wife is like, this is just our thanks to you for all that you do. For I'm like, ah, oh, this is great. Praise God. Hallelujah for all this bacon, right? I go off to work. Everything's going smooth. Jim and I have this meeting. We're, we're just talking about how God's grace is working in, in the, the, the church here at Sojourn. We're giving high fives. God is dominating this place. Like, we're doing awesome. People are coming. They're being saved. We're just dunking them left and right in the, in the baptismal waters. We go out to lunch, and we just want to celebrate. We go out to lunch, and we, we see this waitress, and, and she just starts asking, like, hey, you guys look like pastors. Do you, know, do, you, do you know about Jesus? We're like, yeah, we know about Jesus. We start telling her how awesome he is, and she's like, I want to know him too. And we're like, that's right. Come on. She wants to come to Sojourn, but she starts telling all of her friends in the restaurant, and they cart coming up to our table too. We start to look a little bit like celebrities, but we're just telling them about Jesus. Things are good here, right? They're all coming on Sunday. And we're all just, man, high five all the way home. We go, we go finish up work for the day. I go home. My favorite meal is laid out on the table. Blessing and bountiful food for me. Some sort of meat, some sort of potatoes, ice cream and brownies at the end. I mean, things are great. We get done with dinner as the kids are singing songs together in harmony and perfect notes. <laughs> we get done with dinner and, and we go and, and Anna's like, please read the Bible to me. I'm like, yes, I would love to read the Bible to you. And she just keeps asking for story after story. And we're singing hymns and spiritual songs and addressing one another in that way. <laughs> Everything is great. We're praying together. And then Anna just skips off to bed, lays her head down. I'm thankful for you, Daddy. I love you. Night, night. And goes right to sleep. Reads, same thing. He doesn't tell me anything yet. But he smiles at me and just, boom, right to sleep. The whole night. Now, here's the question. On which day was I more accepted by God? We're tempted to say the second one. But the reality is, is that both of those days were an abomination. How dare we place our acceptance from God in our performance? How dare we come before God and say, look at my performance and my works this day. And say that this is my reason for standing before you. That's not grace. God's grace says in our powerless lives that both of those days, if I base them before God on that performance, then I'm an abomination before him. But if I come before him in the grace that he's given me through Christ Jesus, then I am fully accepted both of those days. Whether we're skipping and jumping and even high fives because people are getting saved, or whether I'm being criticized and have a grumbling attitude all day, I'm accepted before God. This is the scandalous, wonderful message of God's grace that has penetrated lives. Our standing and our acceptance before a holy God does not get based on our performance. Amen. Either good or bad. And we have both of those days. Instead, our standing before God is based on Christ's perfect performance. Our standing before God is based not on what we have done, but the grace that has been given to us through Christ Jesus. 
And from the very beginning, this is what Paul is turning them toward. This is what he's pointing them to. He wants them to see God's grace at work within them. I give thanks to God's grace that is at work in your lives. Yeah, there's problems in Corinth. Yeah, there's struggles and divisions and all sorts of things that are messed up. But God's grace is at work there. His grace has been given. And as Paul, he's seeing this grace that's at work within him. He's seeing how it's changed him. He's seeing how it's worked. And he's reminding them of it. So before he addresses these problems, he starts to address them as people who have received grace in Christ Jesus and he gives thanks. But we need this centering. We need this reminder to look at the grace that has been given to us in Christ Jesus and we need to give thanks as well. And so through Christ, grace has been given. This is what Paul says of them. But it's not as if God has given them this grace and then kind of said, good luck. Get in the game, good luck, I'll see you soon. No, Paul goes on. We're to remember this grace that has been given to us in Christ, but we're also to walk in the grace and walk in Christ as he has provided and he has confirmed in us. So in Paul, he's thankful for the grace, but he also sees it confirmed in their lives. If you look in verse five, he says that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. They were enriched in Christ, in speech and knowledge. And speech and knowledge would have been things that in their culture were very valuable to them. These are things that they highly treasured. They wanted to be people that could speak really well and have great knowledge and could spin that knowledge to others. And Paul says, Christ has enriched you with these things. He's thankful of this, that this is a certain way that they were uniquely gifted in these things, in this knowledge and in this speech. And when he says they were enriched in Christ, what he's saying is that this is from Christ. He's the one who's made you rich in these things. He's the one who's blessed you with these things. And so in other words, those things are dependent upon Jesus. It's not you and your greatness and your great speech and your great knowledge. You've been enriched in these things through Christ Jesus. And so they were, these things, speech and knowledge, were especially evident amongst their community, their Christian community. Now we know that coming up in 1 Corinthians, some of these things, speech and knowledge, are going to be a lot of problems. They're not using them well. There's some negative practices associated with these. But Paul doesn't say anything about that now. He says he's thankful for these things now. He's thankful for those gifts that he's given. Why? Why is he thankful for them? If he knows how many problems these specific things are going to cause him. Why? It's because he's putting the focus on where it should be. On Jesus Christ. See, these gifts were given to them by Christ. And he sees that and he recognizes it. And that is worthy of thanksgiving. That is worthy of praise to God. These were still good gifts. Even if they're going to be abused, even if they're going to be twisted, they've been enriched to them by Christ Jesus. These were good gifts and he gives thanks for them. They're dependent upon Jesus and he gives thanks to Christ Jesus. And so what's Paul doing here once again? He's directing their focus. Not toward the gifts, but toward the giver. Toward the one who has enriched them with these things. Now for Christmas, Anna got some markers to like color on this little purse. And that's a good gift. Anna loves to color. She would love to color on this little purse. Now we haven't given her these markers yet. <laughs> because she's also just two. And while she loves to color, she hasn't quite figured out all the context of where that's appropriate. And so we're a little worried that if we just gave her free reign with these markers, that pretty soon it would be like the TV and the wall would be, and herself would be colored with markers. 
but still it was a good gift. And whoever got her that, it was a thoughtful thing. If you knew her, you'd think, like, she likes to color. She likes to do these things. This will be a good gift. And so we were thankful for these things. And we taught her to try to be thankful for these things as well. And so even if the, the gift could be abused, it shouldn't take away any sort of thankfulness on her part or even thankfulness to the one who's given it to her. And the same thing is true here. Regardless of the abuses that are coming, It doesn't minimize or deny the blessing of these gifts and the blessing of these specific things that Christ has enriched them with. And so Paul turns their attention not to their gifts, but to the one who's given these gifts. And he shows them that they're given and dependent upon Christ Jesus and their confirmation. Yeah, there were abuses of these problems, of these gifts, but they were a confirmation that God's grace was at work within them. Confirmation of this, he says, as he continues on, the Corinthians He wasn't thankful for their great knowledge and speech and all these things in and of themselves, but it was enriched to them by Jesus Christ. And so he goes on in verse 6 to say, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. And so these gifts were enriched to them. They were given to them, and they're confirming that the gospel had transformed them. They're confirming that the gospel is at work in their lives. He's confirming that, they're, that God's power is at work in their powerless lives. And God, through these gifts, he's confirming the gospel's work, that the gospel has taken root in that place. And these gifts were such a confirmation that Paul goes on to say in verse 7, so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Man, what a what a huge verse right here in the middle of this. Then you think about all the problems that are getting ready to deal with in Corinthians. You think about all these issues that they got, and all of them, not one of them is due to any sort of lacking something from God. None of their problems can they turn around and say, God, if you just given us more here. No, He's enriched them with what they needed. He's enriched them with what they needed to walk in Christ. And so none of them can say, what, What's going on here? They have what they need to live faithfully, to function rightly, to live godly lives. And so the Corinthians weren't just to remember the grace that had been given them in Christ Jesus, but they were to walk in Christ Jesus and how he's enriched them. Jesus isn't just their past salvation. He is still their current salvation, and they are to rely upon and walk with him. And it's a good reminder that all that Jesus asks of his church that he provides There's not one thing that Jesus asks of his church and his people that he doesn't provide the means to get done. So we too are to remember the grace that has been given us in Christ Jesus, but we're to walk in Christ, knowing that we have all that we need to be saved initially, that grace. But he's continued this. He's continued to give us what we need to live faithful lives in him. It was started by his grace, and it continues by his grace. It's all from Christ. It's been given to us through Christ. Second Peter verse 1 says this very thing. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. What, what do we lack to live a life of godliness? Peter saying nothing. Ephesians 1.3 says, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Romans 8 says, if God didn't spare his own son, how will we not also with him graciously give us all things? We need to see that we have what we need to live godly lives. We have what we need to walk faithfully in Christ Jesus. We have the means and it's been given to us by God. And we don't just want to be thankful for them. We want to walk in them. We have what we need. And so all the problems in the church and in our individual lives, all the issues and the brokenness that we deal with, 
We can't say, God, you, you didn't give me the gifts to, to deal with that. No, we can thank God that he's given us the provision to walk faithfully. You, you, you've probably heard that phrase. It's kind of an easy way to break up with somebody, right? You can say, hey, we shouldn't date anymore. It's not you, it's me, right? Which is kind of a nice way of saying, no, it's actually you, but this is the nicest way I can put it. But the church can't come and say those kind of things and be in reverse. Say, well, it's not you, God, although it really is. It's me, you know, I'm, no. Instead, we need to give that line to God and be honest and say, actually, the problem that I'm dealing with in my life, the problem we're dealing with this church, it's not you, God. It's not that you have failed us in any way. It's not that you have failed to give us what we need. It's us. It's our own sin that's at work in our lives. So we can't look at God and blame him. So that means that when I have my quiet time, that I can't blame God when it's stale, which it sometimes is. I can't say, God, what is going on here? Like I sit down here and I'm just not hearing anything from your word. I just keep reading page after page and I'm praying and yet nothing's happening. You must be doing something wrong, God. No. God says his word's a hammer and fire to chisel away the hardness of my heart, to warm up the cold parts of it. It says it's living and active, so it's not as if it's like this old ancient book that won't come alive. No, the fault isn't with God. The fault is in us. It's not God, it's us. And this is what Paul is is pointing to. You have what you need to live faithfully. Jesus has given given you what you need to be a faithful church. But you're not to focus just on these gifts, but remember to focus on the one who's given these gifts. Walk in Christ Jesus. And so remember the, the grace that was given to them in Christ Jesus. Walk in that grace that has been given to them in Christ Jesus and how he's enriched them in every way. But man... I walk a lot, and I trip a lot. Not just spiritually, like physically. I've been walking for 20-something years, and I fall down at times, like all the way down. One time we lived in Louisville. We had some steps that went up to our staircase, you know, steps that went up to our door. We were on the second floor. I walked those steps every day, two, three, four times a day. And yet one morning I'm trucking along, acting like things are great, day is great. Once again, birds are chirping, sun's out, and boom! I go up a step, and I just fall right on my face. People are watching too. I'm like, great, this is awesome. Really appreciate this public humility. Or shame, I guess, more, in my opinion. And I still, even after walking and going up steps so many times, I still fall. I still fail. And so what are we walking toward? And how can we even know that we can make it? If we're walking in Christ Jesus, where are we going? And how can we make it there? Because we know that we mess up and we know that we're still a mess. And so what happens to this? And Paul says, they're not lacking spiritually and continues on in verse 7. They have not lacking any gifts as what? As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. They have these gifts that have been given to them and they're given to them to walk in Christ Jesus as they wait. As they wait. And what are they waiting for? They're waiting for the second coming. They're waiting for the ultimate consummation of all things by Christ himself. This is what they're waiting for. They're not to look at look for and at their own arrival and say, we've really perfected things. They're not to look for when everything's become perfect in their church. They're to look to Christ Jesus and to his coming to set all things right. And so Paul is pointing them once again to Christ. You're waiting for him. You're looking to him. The gifts that you've been given, they're to help you walk in Christ until he returns. They're to help you as you wait. They weren't the end. The gifts weren't the end goal. They were to help them build up one another as they wait for Christ Jesus, 
as they're waiting for his return. And so these gifts that were given them, they were to help them build, build on one another, but also to build this anticipation and this eagerness and hope as they waited for Christ to come back. And so it's not the gifts that's going to sustain them. And he continues on in verse 8 to, to say this. You're waiting for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ, who, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. How was grace given to them? It was given to them in Christ Jesus. Who enriched them in speech and in knowledge? It was Christ Jesus in him that they were enriched. And who are they waiting for? They're waiting for Christ Jesus. And who is sustaining them? Christ Jesus. Jesus. Isn't it remarkable that Paul expresses such confidence that these Corinthians will make it to that day blameless. You know about the problems of Corinth. You know all the things they struggle with. Isn't it remarkable that he, he's so confident and just can, can just spout off? Yeah, I know you're going to make it to the day blameless in Christ Jesus. How can he do that? He knows the issues that are going on. He knows what's going to happen Actually, pretty soon in these, these books to the Corinthians, and this book specifically too, he's going to exhort them and warn them in some of the strongest ways in the Scripture. And yet, he's so confident that they'll be sustained until the end. And so what, what gives Paul this confidence to say this? It certainly wasn't the Corinthians. It certainly wasn't their performance. It certainly wasn't their work. It certainly wasn't their knowledge or speech. They were a mess. Now, what gives him this confidence is Christ Jesus. You know, their faith is closer to, to being like a house of cards than a strong and sturdy building. And so he doesn't say and ground his confidence on their faith, on their goodness, on their performance. He grounds his confidence on the one who gave that grace, who enriched them, who will be revealed. He grounds his confidence in Christ Jesus. They're awaiting Jesus' day. It is going to be his day. And because it's his day, he can guarantee how anyone or everyone is going to be there. He is the one who will sustain them till the end. And I love how it's not as if Jesus just barely gets them there, these awful Corinthians. And he ekes it out like, yeah, Jesus, you barely made it, but you did. No, Jesus doesn't do barely jobs. He doesn't eke things out. He presents them on that day blameless. Jesus finishes the work that he began in them. It's all through Christ. And so Paul states further why he has such confidence. It's Jesus who's going to sustain you, and he continues on, verse 9. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul's confidence of the Corinthians' outcome is based on not their behavior, not their gifts, but on Jesus Christ, but on God himself. Their outcome is dependent upon the faithfulness of God. God. One author says that God's faithfulness in having called and redeemed them now serves as the grounds for Paul's hope in their final salvation in the end. They've been saved by Christ. They're being saved by Christ. They will be saved by Christ. God started this work in Corinth. Grace had penetrated this evil place, and he didn't abandon them to figure things out on their own and sustain, sustain themselves till the end. 
No, he gives them what they need to live godly lives and he gives them what they need to be sustained until the very end. And believer, our salvation is just like that. It is secured in Christ Jesus. We were saved, we are being saved, we will be saved. We can take that to the bank. Not because we have done something or will do something to keep ourselves in that place, but because we have a faithful God who will keep us until the end. If God began a good work of grace in us, he can be trusted to complete that work. Paul says this in other places, I'm sure of this, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Believers, we don't have to be in doubt. If you have put all your trust in Christ Jesus, you no longer have to be in doubt and wonder if you'll make it, even when you have day number one where you haven't performed well at all. Even when you've had day number two and you think that you're more accepted before God, you don't have to be in doubt because your basis before God and sustaining until the end is not based on you and your works and your performance. It's based on God and his faithfulness. And one author says that it's, One of the most precious things about the Christian faith that our continuance in eternal life depends not on our feeble hold on Christ and we have a feeble hold on Christ. It doesn't depend on that but on his firm grip on us. Christ has a firm grip on us so much so that he says if any are mine, they're in my hand and no one can snatch them out of my hand. God is faithful. I had a professor at seminary his father, he, he had a tumor, and this tumor created some sort of lesions in his brain that started really taking over his life. So much so that this guy who, who was a pastor, who, who would read often, couldn't even figure out which side was up and down on a book. It was just deteriorating him inside and out. And, and, and you can imagine what they would go through as a family and how they would have dealt with this as the, the, the lesions kind of work through his body and and help him lose all function, so much so that he forgets names of close family members and grandkids, even his own children. And so as my professor one day was was taking his children to go care for his dad, his daughter asked this question. What if grandpa forgets about Jesus before he dies? Where will he go? Parents, are you ready to answer these kinds of questions? Like, golly, man, what happens to grandpa if he forgets Jesus? He's forgotten everything else. He doesn't even know who we are. He doesn't know how to read. He's forgotten everything. What happens if he forgets Jesus? Where is he gonna go? And I love this answer. He replied back to his daughter, what matters most is not whether grandpa remembers Jesus, but whether Jesus remembers him. God turned grandpa's heart to trust him many years ago, and Jesus will never forget him. No matter what, Jesus never forgets. We fail. We mess up. We sin, and we're going to do it again. We blow it, we're unfaithful. And so what's our sustaining to be based on? Not the house of cards that is our faith but on the solid rock that is our Savior, our sustainer. Jesus will never forget us. Our sustaining is not based on some sort of shaky ground, 
but on this rock-solid place that is Christ. And God is faithful. He never forgets. So Paul, he's again telling them about their sustaining, but telling them about the sustainer, redirecting their focus from themselves, from their gifts, from their struggles to Christ Jesus. He wants them to center their lives there, to see him as their, his past and present and future salvation as their all in all. And Christians, this is where we should be as well. Jesus is the one who saved us, who gifts us, who enriches us, who confirms his grace in us, who comes, who sustains. He is all in all, and he is to be our all in all. We are to remember him, walk in him, and let him sustain us until the very, very end. And we're to dance with the one that brought us. We didn't show up to this party on our own accord. We were invited we were bought a ticket, we were carried in, and we are going to cling on to Jesus until it ends. Let's pray together. God, honestly, hopefully, when we look at the amazing story of your grace, we feel just that, amazement, awe. We are such wretches. And yet in Christ Jesus, we've been given the grace that we never deserved or earned. We've been given this wonderful acceptance because of the work that you have done. And not only have you received us in Christ Jesus and by your grace, but you've given us what we need to live faithful lives and to walk in Christ Jesus. And yet we know, even though we have the means to live faithfully, that we don't. And that we sin. And that we mess up. And that we feel broken and down and depressed and trampled on. And God, would you turn our eyes and fix them upon the sustainer. Jesus Christ, the one who can keep us until the end, until his day comes. And it is his day. He gets the say. And so God, may we delight in your sustaining of us, your saving of us, your current saving of us, and your future saving of us. And in that, may we just exalt this sustainer, the one we know as Jesus Christ. May he be exalted and lifted up in our lives. I want to pray for those who don't know Jesus, that they would turn to him even now. And would put all their trust in him. All their faith in him. And their lives would be radically transformed by the grace they receive. But God, for those who have received grace, who know you, would you empower us by this grace to be bold and effective ministers of this grace in the world. And would Jesus' name be exalted throughout the earth. Amen.